0: Okay, my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today is Laura Track. She's going to be talking about the BC Human re- Rights System. Briefly, it says, Laura is a human rights lawyer and the Director of Education and Community Legal Assistance Society's Human Rights Clinic. She advocates on behalf of people who have experienced discrimination and assists complainants to navigate BC, BC's human rights process. Laura also has a strong interest in making legal knowledge accessible. She delivers workshops and presentations to a wide variety of audiences to help people understand their human rights and comply with their legal obligations. Please welcome Laura Track. Laura. Thank you so much, um, and thank you very much for having me. It's really nice to be with you all this morning. Um, I'm going to tell you just a little bit about the clinic where I work before I tell you more about the human rights system in BC. The BC Human Rights Clinic is part of CLASS. CLASS stands for the Community Legal Assistance Society and we're a nonprofit legal organization that provides free legal services to lower income folks in a wide range of areas. So I work in our (laughs) human rights clinic but we also have a mental health law program that uh, assists people who may have been detained under the Mental Health Act. And we also have a community law program that does um, tenancy and income security, workers' rights, and a variety of of work under that kind of heading of community law. So um, our human rights clinic uh, is really focused on people with complaints under the Human Rights Code, which I'm gonna tell you all about over the course of our time together this morning. And we provide a real range of services, from just meeting with people for a half an hour of legal information and advice about an issue that they might be experiencing, all the way up to providing somebody with a lawyer who can represent them at a hearing of a human rights complaint. And we do have a free uh, clinic that operates on Mondays that people can come to for that little bit of um, free advice, 30-minute appointments for some free advice. And we do these kinds of education workshops as well. So that's what we're all about. That's the um, header of our website. If you're interested in learning more, you can look us up at BCHRC. So my plan for today's presentation, and we only have a pretty short time, so I won't be able to get into the, you know, depths and nitty gritties of the law, but uh, what I'd like to leave you with at the end of today's presentation is a good sense of how the Human Rights Code works, how how and where it applies in our lives, and what you might do if you felt that you had a complaint under the Human Rights Code, how you would go about accessing the system that exists for dealing with those things. So um, that's sort of broad brush of what I'm going to try to cover in our time together, and then I really look forward to your questions at the end. I'd like to start my presentations about the human rights system in BC by just um, contextualizing the human rights um, issues that I'm going to talk about in a larger um, context of human rights. Because I think when we think about human rights, we have really big picture ideas about what that term means. And we might think of the universal declaration of human rights, for example, or we might think of rights like the right to housing, or the right to water, or the right to an adequate standard of living, these kinds of big, broad, perhaps aspirational kinds of conceptions of rights. And I think that that's true and right, and yes, those absolutely are human rights, but it's not the level that I'm going to be speaking about today. We might also think about the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which, as no doubt many of you know, is part of Canada's constitution and protects a range of really critically important rights, including the right to equality, the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, and a whole variety of other, other rights. And I'm also not really going to be talking about those rights either. Um, The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms applies at the level of of government, applies to government policies and laws and the actions of um, representatives from the government, like the police and so forth. Um, And we can drill down a little bit further when we are talking about human rights. I kind of think of it as a, a bit of a funnel with international human rights kind of existing up here, the charter existing a little bit closer to home, but really the human rights that I'm working on and going to be telling you about are at the bottom end of the funnel, which are the provincial human rights codes, which unlike the charter, which only applies to government actors, the human rights codes apply in our day-to-day lives in a range of areas that affect us every day. And as I'll say more about in a minute, those areas include our jobs, our homes, and in our interactions with services that are made available to the public. So what I'm going to be focusing on mainly is the BC Human Rights Code, but I will just say a word about the Canadian Human Rights Act. Um, As you know, Canada is set up as a a federation where the federal government has authority over some things and the provincial government has authority over some things. So if you, for example, worked in a federally regulated environment, like a bank or a telecommunications company, an airline, um, and you were experiencing discrimination in your job, your human rights complaint would go to the Canadian human rights system. Um, which regulates and covers federally um, regulated employment and services. In the Canadian system, um, there is a commission that acts as a kind of gatekeeper to the the system. So the commission receives complaints, investigates those complaints, and then makes a determination of whether they should be referred off to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal for uh, a decision. We don't have that gatekeeper situation in BC. In BC, we have what's called a direct access model of human rights protection. So if you have experienced discrimination in your job in BC, in a provincially regulated sphere, um, which most workplaces in BC are, then you make your complaint right to the BC Human Rights Tribunal. It's direct access. There's no filter that you have to go through. Um, No investigations that happen before you're allowed to access that system. You just file your complaint right there. Um, And the BC Human Rights Code, as I mentioned, covers employment, tenancy and services within the province. And really every province has human rights legislation. They're fairly similar across the country with some minor differences between them. And uh, our code in BC is enforced by the BC Human Rights Tribunal, which is a lot like a court. Um, It's the court that deals with human rights complaints in BC. Um, It's not exactly a court. It's what we call an administrative tribunal. Um, But it operates very much like a court. It has independent adjudicators who hear and decide complaints about violations of the Human Rights Code. It's also not like a court because it's pretty accessible (laughs) in a lot of ways. Um, Whereas our courts can be very expensive to access, very complicated um, to use and to follow the rules and procedures, the Human Rights Tribunal is much simpler and much more accessible. Um, There are no filing fees, for example. It's completely free to access. You can get the forms online and um, file a complaint with no cost. Um, The tribunal also offers free mediation services. If you've filed a complaint and the parties want to engage in a negotiation, a mediation, the tribunal will provide a free mediator and space to help make that happen. And what does the tribunal do? Well, they, as I mentioned, hear and decide human rights complaints in the exact same way that a court does with evidence, testimony, a sort of balancing of... Um, the different perspectives that they hear. And if they do find that discrimination has happened, the tribunal can order compensation and other remedies for that discrimination, including systemic remedies requiring an employer to change a policy, for example, requiring the government to make changes to the way it delivers a service, for example. They can award pretty broad remedies as well as just compensation to individuals who've experienced discrimination. Um, One thing to flag that's really important about the human rights system is that there is a limitation period. It's one year. You have one year from the date of um, the discrimination to file your complaint. Um, And the other thing that I think helps make the tribunal more accessible is that even if you're not successful in making your complaint, It's very unlikely that you would be responsible for the legal costs of the other side. And I know that that is a real barrier for many people to accessing the court system, the fear that um, you could be on the hook for the other side's legal costs know that that causes a lot of people to turn away from that system just based on that risk. Um, (coughs) Cost awards in the tribunal system are very rare. You have to behave quite badly and break the rules before costs are likely to be awarded against you. So that doesn't have to be uh, a barrier or a fear for folks in making their human rights I also like to sort of ground these presentations in my favorite section of the Human Rights Code, which is the section that sets out the purposes of the code. Why do we have anti-discrimination laws in our province anyway? What is this law trying to achieve? What's its goal or objective? And I know that's a lot of tech stuff there, but um, these are the five identified purposes of the Human Rights Code. and. Um, You can have a look at them there yourself. But I mean, promoting a climate of understanding and mutual respect where all are equal in dignity and rights, that sounds pretty good to me. We could use some more of that happening. Um, Identifying and eliminating persistent patterns of inequality associated with discrimination. That one really speaks to me as well. It's not just about redressing individual instances of bad behavior or bad treatment, but actually also digging into persistent systemic issues of inequality and trying to address them. Um, That's another purposes of the code, another purpose of the code. So you may have noticed that I'm here to talk about human rights, and I keep talking about discrimination. And as I mentioned, human rights, I kind of conceptualize as a bit of a funnel where up here at the broad end of the funnel, we have these big ideas of of human rights and, and what's captured in that. But as we narrow into the human rights protections that we have in law and how they apply to us directly day to day, what we really have in our human rights code is anti-discrimination law. That's really what the human rights code is attempting to address, discrimination, differential treatment, or treating people badly on the basis of what are called protected characteristics. So these are some of the kinds of behaviors and issues that the Human Rights Code is dealing with. They're dealing with allegations of discrimination and discriminatory treatment. And in human rights law, we talk about two kind of broad categories of discrimination. We have what's sometimes called direct discrimination, which is the more obvious, blatant, form of discrimination where there is name-calling or bullying or singling someone out, harassing someone, treating someone badly on the basis of a a characteristic of theirs in a way that causes them disadvantage. Usually direct discrimination is pretty easy to pick out and identify and see happening when it happens what we call indirect discrimination or sometimes adverse effects discrimination can be a lot more subtle. It can be more difficult to identify when it is happening because often what happens is that there's a a neutral rule or a policy that doesn't look like it's singling anybody out or intending to treat someone differently, but it has the effect of disadvantaging some individuals or some groups on the basis of a protected character. And the classic example of this, one of the earliest cases that our courts heard um, where adverse effects discrimination was really kind of grappled with and analyzed was a case involving uh, a woman who practiced the Seventh-day Adventist faith which um, prohibits you from working on Saturdays. People who follow this faith don't work on Saturdays. Saturdays is their, their Sabbath. Um, and she worked at Sears, and Sears had a policy that required all staff to be available for work seven days a week. Not that they had to work seven days a week, but they had to be available seven days a work, and the boss would schedule them as the boss saw fit. And uh, Ms. O'Malley was her name. Uh, Ms. O'Malley told her boss, well, I, I can't work on Saturdays. I'm not available to work on Saturdays because of my religion. And her boss said, well, that's our rule. Sorry, I guess you're fired. And so she lost her job and she made a human rights complaint to say that this policy, while applying to everyone and applying to everyone equally, disadvantages me because of my religion. And religion is one of the characteristics that's protected from discrimination by the Human Rights Code. And she was successful in making that argument. Sears had attempted to defend itself by saying, well, this is our policy that applies to everyone. It can't be discriminatory to apply the same policy to everyone. We're not saying no Seventh-day Adventists allowed to work here. We're just saying that. We have this policy. And the court disagreed with that and said that effect of your neutral policy is discrimination. And that was really the, the ground of, um, or sort of the, the first first case, the first time that concept was really analyzed by the courts. And, um, and I think it's a really important one, uh, an important concept to keep in mind, this idea that we need to look at the effect the impacts of policies rather than the intentions of the person or company or organization that's implementing those policies. We need to look at how they play out in real life and how they may disadvantage um, particular groups on the basis of their protected characteristic. I think it's important to highlight that everyone in BC has protections under the Human Rights Code You don't have to be a citizen, you don't have to have lived in BC for six months. Um, Everyone has protections, and the protections that we have in our jobs even apply to people who are volunteering or in unpaid um, positions. Um, Everyone, no matter their age, has protections under the code, so it's very broadly applicable. And as I've mentioned a couple of times, we have these protections not everywhere, not everywhere in our lives, you know, walking down the street and uh, experiencing discrimination. We probably couldn't make a human rights complaint about that because it's not captured in one of these areas of protection. But we have protections in a pretty broad range of areas of our lives. We have protections in our jobs, in our tenancies, or in our purchase of property and in our access to services and facilities. And that's really the broadest category, I would say, the biggest bucket of uh, places where we enjoy human rights protections. So services and facilities could include um, a mall, a community center, uh, business, uh, hospital, schools, government services. These are all what are called services customarily available to the public public services that are not allowed to differentiate or discriminate between people or group. And this here is the list of protected characteristics. We have protection from discrimination in those areas that I just mentioned on the basis of these personal characteristics about ourselves. So these are called protected characteristics or sometimes um, prohibited grounds of discrimination. Grounds of discrimination is another term you may hear. And I mean, you can see that list for yourself, race, color, ancestry, place of origin. These are all kind of similar concepts that combine to make up our ethnic origin. Uh, Religion, as we just heard with Ms. O'Malley, we have protection on the basis of our religion and also protection, I should add, on the basis of our non-religion. Atheist practices or beliefs uh, are also protected from discrimination on this ground. Um, Marital status, family status, you can't be discriminated against based on who your spouse is or who's in your family or what kind of family you have. A landlord's not allowed to say, oh, I'm not going to rent to you because you're a single mother household, for example. We have protection from discrimination on the basis of disability, both physical disability and mental disability. That might include mental illness, cognitive or developmental disabilities, physical disabilities, provided that they have some degree of um, severity and persistence. We don't have protection if we get a cold, for example, but if you... Uh, injure yourself on the job or have some other kind of fairly severe, fairly persistent um, physical limitation going on, you have protection on the basis of disability. Uh, We are protected from discrimination on the basis of our sex or gender, our sexual orientation, our gender identity or expression and expression. These are um, two grounds that were fairly recently added to BC's Human Rights Code. Gender identity and expression were added to the code in I believe 2016. So um, trans people have had protection on the basis of sex for a long time and have been successful in making cases using that prohibited ground of discrimination. But I think it's an important um, it's important that they that trans people have specific explicit protection in the code, and that's what gender identity and expression protections do. Uh, We can't be discriminated against on the basis of age. Note that age is defined in the code as 19 or over. So actually, um, younger people can't bring age discrimination cases, but they can, of course, bring other kinds of discrimination cases if they're not uh, being accommodated at school, Uh, their disability, for example, is not being accommodated at school, or they're being subjected to homophobic bullying, for example, those kinds of issues. Could give rise to complaints under the code, but they can't, a young person couldn't make a complaint that they were um, not hired because they're a young person, for example, if they're under 19. That's a kind of carve out of the code. And I will say there are some other age related exceptions. It's not discrimination, for example, to have a seniors only housing option, for example. And there are also some exceptions for like pension plans and seniority schemes and other things where we do draw distinctions on the basis of age. Um, in the tenancy concept, landlo- tenancy context, landlords can't discriminate based on your source of income. They can't say, oh, you're on social assistance, not going to rent to you, or oh, you receive a pension not comfortable renting to you. Of course, landlords can make decisions based on the amount of your income and ensuring that you're able to pay your rent, but they can't discriminate on the basis of the source of your income. And the last one, this only applies in the employment context. Uh, Employers are prohibited from discriminating on the basis that you have a criminal record, provided that the offense you have the record for is unrelated to the job that you're applying for or doing. And of course, we go through these protected characteristics one by one as if they're single things, and discrimination only happens on the basis of them one at a time. And of course, that's not true. Those personal characteristics that we have, we have all of them, all the time, at the same time. And sometimes discrimination happens on the basis of multiple or overlapping Aspects of a person's identity and physical, uh, sorry, and personal characteristics. So, um, so it's important to remember that um, we are comprised of all of those aspects of identity at the same time, and um, those characteristics or prohibited grounds of discrimination may overlap and intersect to create different experiences of discrimination depending on. those elements of identity. I think I've said enough about that. Um, Who may be responsible for discrimination? Um, When you are filling out a human rights complaint form, you have to identify who the respondent is, who is responsible for the discrimination. Um, The vast majority of human rights complaints are made in the employment context against Employers, and so you would name the the company or the business that was employing you that you say has discriminated against you. Uh, landlords can be responsible for discrimination. Um, the owners or managers in businesses, other service providers. These are what are called respondents. Um, we don't normally name as respondents uh, individuals unless they are acting totally outside of their legitimate job duties. So the responsibility for addressing discrimination, for preventing discrimination, for ensuring that people are able to work in a discrimination-free environment, that rests with the employer, with the business or company. Um, So even if they are not the ones actually doing the discriminating, if the company, if the employer knows about it and doesn't do anything about it, they are the ones that will ultimately be liable for the discrimination. Sometimes we see an individual, a co-worker, a supervisor, um, named in a discrimination complaint and held individually liable for that discrimination. But those are in situations where they are way outside of the scope of their employment. So sexual harassment cases is where that comes up most often. Can't really say that somebody's just doing their job when they're sexually harassing someone. Or um, racist harassment or homophobic harassment, other forms of harassment that could be discrimination under the code. But in contrast, a supervisor who has to call somebody up and terminate them Let's say for a discriminatory reason, like they got pregnant. That would likely be sex discrimination. But that supervisor isn't doing something totally outside of their job duties. They're acting in the course of their job duties. They probably wouldn't be individually liable for that discrimination. That res- um, the responsibility there would fall to the company itself. So what a complainant has to show to make out a successful human rights complaint is that they have one of those protected characteristics, we saw the list there, um, that they were treated badly or some kind of policy had a negative impact on them. So negative treatment or negative impact. And then the hardest part of any human rights complaint is to show a connection between that protected characteristic and the negative impact. And the reason that that can be difficult is that um, it's pretty rare, in my experience in Canada, that people um, wear their discrimination on their sleeves. Um, it can be very difficult to show that the reason you didn't get the apartment, let's say, is um, because you're gay, or the reason that you didn't get the job is because you're pregnant. It can be difficult to show that connection between your protected characteristic and the negative treatment. So um, that third step in the complainant's case is sometimes called the nexus, and the nexus is often the, the part of the case that the tribunal says, you know, I, we just can't, just can't see it. We just, there's not enough evidence to make that connection. And the Human Rights Tribunal has a, a standard of proof You've probably heard that phrase before, the standard of proof, and maybe you've heard uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, that's the criminal standard, and that's a really high standard. Proving something beyond a reasonable doubt um, is the standard that we set for putting somebody in jail, for example. Standard is a bit lower in the human rights context and in other non-criminal legal matters, and it's what's called a balance of probabilities. You have to be able to prove your discrimination case on a balance of probabilities. And what that means is that it's more likely than not. You have to convince the tribunal it's more likely than not that there was that connection between your protected characteristic and the negative thing that happened to you. And if you can do that, you've established your part of the discrimination case, but there's a second step where the respondent, the person who is alleged to have discriminated, gets to try to uh, defend themselves by arguing, one, that the treatment was justified. Um, Yes, maybe this policy of requiring everyone to work seven or be available to work seven days a week, yeah, maybe it did have a, a disadvantaging effect on you, Ms. O'Malley, because of your religion, but it was justified because I'm a re- we're a really small company and we need all of our employees to always be available. Otherwise, um, we wouldn't be able to staff the store on the weekends and everybody wants the weekends off. So it's a reasonable policy, it's a justifiable policy to require everyone to be available to work. That would be the argument, right? That a respondent would try to make. There's a reasonable explanation. The treatment was justified. And sometimes the argument an employer will make is that it's a bona fide occupational requirement for, for us on the job. It's bona fide that we require everybody to be available to work seven days a week. Um, sometimes This defense most often comes up in the context of disability, where, for example, we can imagine that there are legitimate bona fide Um, reasons for having policies that, for example, might have a disadvantaging effect on people with disabilities, for example. We might say it's reasonable to require that airline pilots have 20-20 vision, for example. That's a policy that is going to have a disadvantaging effect on people with vision impairment. Person with, a, um, with low vision would be able to say they have a disability, that's their protective characteristic. They didn't get hired for the job, that's a negative effect. And that there's a connection between those two things. They could make out their side of the case. But then the respondent would get the opportunity to say, but there's a really good reason for having this, given the nature of the job, given safety concerns, etc. cetera we can justify having that policy. And if they're successful in doing that, then there's no discrimination and the complaint is unsuccessful. Just wanna flag a couple of other points that um, people are sometimes interested in knowing more about. There's a non-profit exemption in the Human Rights Code that says that if you're a non-profit organization that is um, charitable, philanthropic, educational, um, fraternal, religious or social and exists to serve a particular population, you are allowed to give your services exclusively to that population and also to hire people um, that um, fit within the population that you're working to serve. So a religious order is allowed to only hire you if you subscribe to particular religious beliefs or a um, transition house for women fleeing violence is allowed to only hire women to staff its transition houses, for example. So provided that it's a nonprofit, it is allowed to grant a preference to members of the group that. It's- it's working to serve, and that's kind of by definition carved out of um, what we could call discrimination under the code. With my remaining bit of time, I want to talk about the concept of accommodation, accommodation and what's called in the human rights um, cases, the, the duty to accommodate. And it's a really important concept, and I like to to end with this, because it's really important to remember that not every distinction, not every time we decide to treat someone or a group of people differently, does it equal discrimination. And in fact, sometimes treating people the same results in discrimination. We saw that with Ms. O'Malley, right? Treating everyone at the workplace had a disadvantaging effect on her because of her religion. We actually have to take into account people's differences, um, people's unique characteristics and actual needs and meet those needs in order to promote the goal of equality. We have to look to the outcomes, the results, the impacts of what might seem like neutral policies on their face. And As I mentioned before, it's really not about the intention of the person creating the policy or doing the alleged discrimination. It's the impact, the outcome that matters. So the fact that Simpson Sears didn't intend to discriminate against people of the Seventh-day Adventist faith didn't mean that their policy wasn't discriminatory. So really what it comes down to is that people with different needs may need to be treated differently. That is maybe how we actually get to the goal of substantive equality, meaningful equality that we're hoping for. And that, if you recall back to the purposes of the code, that the human rights code is supposed to be working towards achieving. So in the workplace context, what that may mean, that what the duty to accommodate may mean, is that some aspects of the job may actually have to be changed. In Ms. O'Malley's case, the duty to accommodate meant that she needed to be given Saturdays off. That policy needed to be flexed a little bit for her. For people with disabilities, there may be real practical concrete changes that need to be made in the workplace or to the terms and conditions of the job to ensure that the person is able to to do their job um, on an equal basis with others. And this is an image I bet m- many of you have seen before that I think really nicely illustrates the idea of accommodation and the idea that sometimes treating everyone the same actually perpetuates pre-existing disadvantages, right? We have a tall person, a medium-sized person, and a small person um, wanting to look over the fence and watch a baseball game. And on the left, we see... Uh, the idea of equality, of just treating everyone the same. Everybody gets a box to stand on, but we can see that, well, the smallest person still can't see the game. We don't actually have the the vision of equality that we're going for, a substantive, meaningful equality. We've treated everyone the same, but we haven't taken taken into account their actual needs, their actual differences. Whereas on the right-hand side, we treat people differently by acknowledging the fact that they have different starting points tall person didn't need a box to stand on at all, whereas the shorter person needed two. And so we've treated people differently, but we've actually promoted equality of outcome, of results, of impact, which is what we're going. Um, Often the argument against accommodations employers' concerns about accommodating uh, somebody on the job is that it's it's going to cost too much. It's going to be disruptive. It's going to be costly. It's going to be inconvenient. And what I've been um, really heartened to see is research over the last couple of years that really blows that myth out of the water and suggests that investing in accommodations Investing in um, ensuring workplaces and other public spaces are designed with people with disabilities in mind, it pays off. There's a good business case for doing it. Employers will um, boost their economic growth and uh, be more profitable uh, at the end of the day. The benefits outweigh the costs for workplaces that are accommodating people with a variety of, of kinds of disabilities. So not just from a liability under the Human Rights Code perspective, but also from a business perspective. Um, Investing in accommodations makes good economic sense. And (laughs) some of these numbers are a little bit out of date, but in 2012, almost 4 million Canadians identified as having a disability. And uh, that number is growing as, Uh, the workforce gets older, more people will no doubt identify as having disabilities. And a lot of those folks uh, are unemployed. A lot of those folks with disabilities are um, living with very low incomes, living in poverty, living without jobs and many of them say that if they could find a workplace willing to work with them to accommodate their needs they would um, be glad to join the workforce. Um, They, uh, about three quarters indicated that their condition was prevented them from working or working as much as they wanted to, and if their workspaces could be made more accessible, they um, they would be able to work and able to earn a greater income. So this duty to accommodate is a duty that exists under human rights law in BC and across the country, and the goal is to ensure that people who want to work, who are able to work, who just need some adjustments made to their workplace, work um, or the terms and conditions of their work, are, are able to do so. Um, now, employers don't have a duty to accommodate every possible request that a person with a disability might make, or to do absolutely everything that might make the work site um, perfect for that person. Employers have a duty to accommodate to what's called the point of undue hardship. And what that means is that they have a duty to take action, to take some positive steps to accommodate a person's needs. Um, And they have to do everything reasonable within their power to ensure that that person is able to work. So they might have to adjust um, equipment that they provide at the work site or maybe make some accommodations for needs for extra breaks or starting at a different time. Every case is different and the duty to accommodate is a very individualized process whereby in the best case scenario the employer and the employee and maybe the union if they're involved as well work together to figure out what a reasonable accommodation is going to look like. And a reasonable accommodation is not necessarily a perfect accommodation, it's not necessarily everything that the person with a disability might want, but it is um, a requirement to take seriously, to work with, to explore um, the needs of the person seeking accommodation and see what can be done. And the point of undue hardship comes when it just would be unreasonable to expect the employer to do any more. So you can appreciate that it, where that line is for where undue hardship exists is really gonna depend on the nature of the employer. And a big company like Walmart or Telus or something, it's gonna have much greater capacity accommodate a person because they have the resources because they have this huge workforce where adjustments can be made it's going to where undue hardship exists for them is going to look quite different from let's say a mom and pop shop with two employees and fairly limited you know reserves in the bank to be able to provide accommodation so what one company might be required to do to accommodate a person with a disability's needs could look very different from what a different smaller company might be required to do and where that point of undue hardship would lie. That, all that said, we do of course have the concept of the bona fide occupational requirement. And so for some jobs, there may be bona fide occupational requirements of the job that do preclude some people who may have disabilities from being able to perform that job. And what the tribunal says is it's not discriminatory to terminate someone or refuse to hire someone if they are incapable of filling the essential, fulfilling the essential requirements of the job. Um, but we have to really look um, deeply at that question of incapability is the person truly incapable of fulfilling the essential requirements of the job or with some accommodations, with some creative thinking and planning together to figure out what, what this person needs as support, could they be assisted to be capable of doing the job? Can they be accommodated um, without incurring undue hardship? So I've gone for about 45 minutes now. And I have some scenarios that we could talk about, but maybe rather than doing that, we should just go to questions because you've all listened so attentively for so long that I'd now really like to hear from you.